Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. This week, I'm joined by our news editor, Nick Bostock, and our senior reporter, Ellie Philpotts, to talk about the latest news affecting general practice. Coming up, we're talking about NHS England and the government's recovery plan for access to primary care, as well as changes to the GP contract around patient access that come into effect next week, and what all of this means for practices and patients. We're also looking at whether the BMA is likely to ballot GPs on taking industrial action following this year's contract imposition. And our good news story today is about patients campaigning to save their practices. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. The start of this week saw the government and NHS England unveil their joint plan for recovering access to primary care. The plan is a 46-page document setting out a range of measures that the government and NHS England believe will help improve access to general practice, as well as reduce pressure on practices. The plan is based around four key ambitions, empowering patients, implementing what's called modern general practice access, building capacity and cutting bureaucracy. So Nick, what are NHS England and the government hoping to achieve with all of this? So there are a couple of things here. Part of this is about trying to address the drop in patient satisfaction with general practice by making it easier to contact practices and to book appointments. And NHS England points to the drop in patient satisfaction over the past year, highlights the the fact that patients' experience of making an appointment is likely to be negative when they find they can't get through to their practice. So there are measures here that NHS England hopes will improve access. There's plans to improve phone systems, online access to practices and triage systems to try to make sure patients are offered advice or appointments on the day they call their practice. And that follows on from requirements imposed on practices through the GP contract for 2023-24. And NHS England also says, though, that this is about laying the groundwork for plans set out in the recent Fuller stocktake, which sets out plans to drive integration of primary and community care. And one of the key elements of that report was around streamlining access to care and advice. And the GP Access Recovery Plan says integration of primary care, as envisaged by the Fuller report, can't really go ahead without measures to take the pressure off primary care and end the so-called 8am rush for appointments. So there are two things NHS England says it hopes to achieve through the access recovery plan. One is to end the 8am rush, you know, where patients call en masse at the start of the day and can find it difficult to get through and book an appointment. And the second is to make sure that patients who contact their practice find out on the day how their request is going to be managed. And so patients whose need is clinically urgent should be offered a telephone or face-to-face appointment on the day. Patients whose need is not so urgent should be offered an appointment within two weeks. And in some cases, patients can be directed to self-care or to other local services that can help them, such as pharmacies or other community health services that they can refer themselves to. If we look at all the different bits of the plan, let's start with modern general practice access. This is this new term that's coined in this report. What does that mean and what's it all about? So it's a phrase that NHS England has coined to describe a modern approach to handling requests for care that it says hundreds of innovative GP practices across the country have already adopted. And the Access Recovery Plan describes three main elements to modern general practice access. And it's better digital telephony, simpler online requests, and then faster navigation, assessment and response. It compares how access can work under the traditional model with the way it should work under the modern version. 
So the Access Recovery Plan describes a traditional model of access to general practice as involving either a telephone call or walk-in visit to reception to try to book an appointment. Uh, and patients who can't get through the first time have to call again. And when they make contact with reception, the person they speak to takes down limited information, then books them into a slot if one's available. But if there are no slots available, you're effectively back to square one in terms of trying to get an appointment. And the argument is that under this model, it can take days to access a GP or another member of practice staff. So NHS England says that the modern general practice access model should speed up access and improve patient satisfaction. And under this model, patients would either call, walk in or make an online request for care and then a care navigator. And this is effectively an expanded role for reception staff that NHS England is planning to offer practices support to develop and will direct the patient to the most appropriate service or team and manage some you know, administrative stuff in the background. And so a patient could then be directed to local services such as pharmacy. They could be advised to self-care or directed to assessment and response by someone within the GP multidisciplinary team. And according to NHS England, practices that have adopted this approach to handling contacts with patients have higher satisfaction scores. They've been able to get on top of demand in a way that other practices have struggled to do. There's a lot of work to be done to enable practices to begin to adopt this way of working. Around half of practices still have an analogue telephone system. And NHS England says only about a fifth of practices already have the technology that would enable them to adopt this modern general practice approach. So as well as training staff to operate in this way, getting the tools in place to allow them to do this will be important. And an interesting that says £240 million has been retargeted from somewhere else in the NHS budget to get this off the ground. An average size practice currently on an analogue phone system could receive around £60,000 in support. And an interesting that's offering extra support for practices that sign up early. That all sounds okay, but surely workforce is the major issue. We know that we've lost 2,000 full-time equivalent fully qualified GPs since 2015. You know, we talk about the workforce all the time on this podcast, you know, and that was at the point when the government said we actually needed 5,000 more. There's also a real shortage of practice nurses. So it's hard to see how we can actually improve access without any increase in the overall workforce. I guess, you know, it's all well and good if people know where they are in a phone queue or can send in an online request. But if practices don't have the doctors and nurses to actually provide patient care, it's hard to see how access is going to improve. None of this doesn't necessarily reduce the number of people contacting the practice. What did the plan have to say about the workforce? I mean, there were some kind of indications of what might be coming in this long-awaited workforce plan, weren't there? Yeah, so I mean, in terms of the workforce, you mentioned we're going to have to wait a bit longer to see the full extent of NHS England plans because there's this other report due shortly, the NHS Long-Term Workforce Plan. And that's where NHS England says it's going to offer more detail on how it plans to expand GP training and boost recruitment and retention of the existing GP workforce as part of an extended multidisciplinary primary care team. On the expansion of GP training, what we do know from this recovery plan is that NHS England says it plans to significantly expand GP specialty training. So, I mean, training posts at general practice are already at a record level. More than 4,000 trainees started GP training in each of the past two years, and that's up more than a third from about a decade ago. So if if places grow again to, say, 5,000 a year, Um, That'd be nearly double the level they were at a decade ago. 
and that would obviously be welcome, but it would also raise some questions about the capacity of general practice to support that increased intake. More trainees means more trainers are needed. So that's a question that will have to be answered in that workforce plan. And one question that the workforce plan has perhaps done a better job of answering is around how the NHS can retain more of the trainees coming through GP training. So with the expansion of training places, there's been a rise in the proportion of doctors entering GP training who are international medical graduates or IMGs, whose initial medical qualification was achieved outside the UK. It's about half of trainees now who are international medical graduates. And the RCGP, BMA and others have been calling for some time for the government to make it easier for them to stay in the UK. And the recovery plan says the government is going to offer four-month visa extensions to doctors who come through GP training. And that could be really significant because IMG doctors who complete GP training are at a disadvantage compared to doctors coming through other specialty training. And that's because GP training lasts three years compared to five for most other specialties. And after five years working in the UK, you're entitled to leave to remain. So doctors who complete GP training haven't reached that point. Um, so they have a race against time to find employment with a practice that's registered as a visa sponsor if they want to stay in the UK. And that can push some doctors to look elsewhere. I mean, perhaps to Australia or Canada, where there are health systems that are only too happy to take UK qualified GPs. So extending visas to offer those doctors more time to find a job in UK general practice is a welcome move. NHS England's workforce plans are also going to cover creating a role for specialty and associate specialist or SAS doctors in primary care. So this is something the GMC is heavily in favour of. It says that group of doctors is the fastest growing group in the NHS, while GPs are obviously in decline. And it believes that they can play a role in, in supporting GPs, but it's controversial. GP leaders are worried that SAS doctors would need a lot of supervision. So adding to workload for them may not be as cost effective to employ as allied health professionals who are trained to handle undifferentiated patients, such as nurse practitioners, for example. And the BMA has published a position paper on this. And our story on that's worth a look for anyone who wants to read more about, you know, why the BMA is worried about SAS doctors in primary care. But just to come back on another point that the long-term workforce plan is meant to address, retention of the existing GP workforce, the recovery plan published this week highlights the changes on pensions announced in the last budget. And there are also a number of measures around reducing bureaucracy that you'll come on to that NHS bosses will hope can ease pressure on GPs and help persuade more doctors to remain in their jobs in general practice. But you could argue that the elephant in the room is pay and core funding for general practice. GP income's gone down in real terms in recent years as it has for other doctors. And until that's reversed and practices are offered the funding that they need to cope with rising costs, some of these other measures may only have a, a relatively limited impact. Yeah, I mean, retention is obviously one of the big things that they are going to have to try and do something about. As Nick mentioned there, um, there are steps in the access recovery plan around reducing bureaucracy, which I'll run through now. The big focus on, on what's in the access recovery plan seems to be around cutting workload at the primary and secondary care interface, as it's called. And so what we're talking about here really is inappropriate transfer of work from hospitals to practices. This has been a problem for a long time now, and it's become a lot worse since the 
pandemic, in part because of the backlog of care now. It's so massive. GP Online carried out a poll in the middle of last year in which 81% of GPs said that their practice was experiencing inappropriate transfer of work from hospitals. And 73% of GPs said that this was somewhat or significantly higher than at the same point in the previous year. The thing that's important to note before we go through what's in the plan is that most of these things, they're not new. Some of these things are what hospitals should actually already be doing under their own standard contracts. But what the plan does is it specifies that ICBs will need to take steps to address four key problems and that they need to report back on what they've done at public meetings in October or November this year. So the four things are onward referral. So if a patient's been referred to secondary care and then needs to see another specialty, that referral should happen within the hospital rather than patients being sent back to that GP. It sounds totally ridiculous that this even happens, but it does and it happens a lot and it's really time consuming for patients and for GPs. The second thing is that fit notes and discharge letters need to be done properly by hospitals so that when a patient's sent away from the hospital, they have everything they need. Hospitals are also being asked to have their own call and recall systems for follow-up appointments and tests so patients know who to contact and they don't need to go and ask their GP to chase this up. And finally, providers need to establish single routes of communication between primary and secondary care so GPs know who to contact about things like referrals or getting additional advice. So those are the four things ICBs being asked to make progress on. And on top of that, ICB chief medical officers have also been asked to set up systems or working groups or some way to enable GPs and consultant-led teams to discuss and address challenges or problems that are specific to their area. So all of those four things I mentioned there, they really are an immense source of frustration for GPs and for patients. So obviously it would be a really positive to resolve these issues. But as I said, you know, some of these things are already in the NHS standard contract for hospitals and have been since 2017. And they're still a major problem for practices. So it's not really clear how much this instruction to, to ICBs will make a difference if the actual contract hospitals are operating under hasn't led to any changes. Nick, one of the other proposals that received a lot of media coverage is the idea of significantly expanding what community pharmacy can offer in a bid to reduce demand on practices. What did the plan have to say about that? The idea here is that by the end of 2023, community pharmacies could offer prescription medication, including antibiotics, to treat seven common uh, conditions, including sinusitis, earache, sore throat and some UTIs. And they could offer those prescription medications direct to patients, so cutting out the need for a GP appointment. NHS England says this system, known as Pharmacy First, could save 10 million GP appointments a year if it goes ahead. So that could have a significant impact. There's also a plan to increase capacity for blood pressure checks and to offer women access to oral contraception from pharmacies. And again, this is direct from pharmacies. So that could, again, take further workload off of general practice. And there are also some changes to tax and legislation intended to support pharmacies to take on some of this work. And the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, for example, says Pharmacy First couldn't be a a real game changer. But I think it's also worth noting that the BMA pointed out that community pharmacies are closing across the country, as GP practices are. So... There are questions over the capacity of pharmacy services to take on this new work. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are some other bits on self-care in the plan as well. The plan talks about wanting to make it easier for people to monitor and manage long-term conditions themselves. 
So this was all around recording data about their condition online. But there's also plans to expand the number of people who can self-refer for certain community services, including musculoskeletal services, audiology, weight management services, podiatry, and some community equipment services. We're going to come on to talk about the GP contract changes in a minute that link into all of this. But before we get into that, what's been the reaction to the Access Recovery Plan itself? What have the BMA and RCGP had to say specifically about this plan? So I think from both the BMA and the RCGP, there's a sense that all of these measures could be helpful, but that they're still waiting for the government and NHS England to address the fundamental issues facing general practice, such as underfunding and a chronic shortage of GPs that's only getting worse as things stand. And one of the lines that stood out in this report from NHS England was that since 2019, the government had grown the general practice workforce by 27%. So, I mean, that sounds like a huge success story and it reflects the additional roles reimbursement scheme, bringing in large numbers of health professionals into primary care, as well as the rise in GP training places that we've already talked about. But what a statement like that completely ignores is perhaps the most important fact when you're talking about general practice. And that's that the number of fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs, i.e. GPs, in England has actually dropped by more than a thousand in that same period since 2019. And as we've said before on the podcast, we're actually down by more than 2,000 full-time equivalent GPs since the government promised in 2015 to increase the workforce. Maybe there will be something in the forthcoming workforce plan that can turn that around. But after an imposed contract that doesn't offer the funding practices need to cope with major increases in cost pressures or to offer staff pay increases to compete with other employers, let alone match inflation. These plans don't go anywhere near satisfying GP leaders. And the BMA said that unless GP practices are given time, investment and support to deliver their core services, then they're just being set up to fail. Um, And the RCGP, for its part, said that although there were some encouraging points in all of this, basically general practice just needs thousands more GPs for any of it to make a difference. Now is probably a good time to talk about how the GP contract this year fits in with all of this. So the recovery plan comes alongside a number of measures in the contract that focus on access. And we know already that the BMA GP committee has really objected to some of those changes that are going into the contract. I mean, when the contract changes were announced, the BMA said it just wasn't possible to deliver on many of the ambitions within it without more staff and more funding, as you've mentioned there. I think before we get into talking about the contract, it is important to just reiterate what Nick's just said, that this is an imposed contract. This is not something that the BMA have agreed to. So GPs have effectively had no say in any of the changes around access, which are effectively going to be forced on practices this year. So basically, the changes mean that they take effect from Monday, the 15th of May. They require GP practices to ensure that all patients are offered an assessment of need, an appointment or signposted to an appropriate service at first contact with the practice. So practices have basically been told they can no longer ask patients to call back later or the next day. Now, Ellie... You've been talking to GPs about some of these changes and how practices are planning on implementing them and some of the the problems with it. What have they had to say about all of this? Yeah, so they're concerned about all sorts of things, really, um, from capacity becoming overwhelmed uh, to the gaps in the workforce, making these access plans very difficult to carry out. A lot of practices are really considering sending patients to 111 if they're full for the day. And some of them are even fearing that patients could become trapped in kind of a loop between their practice and 111. 
But it does seem difficult to think of many other options. And BMA's guidance on safe working actually does suggest that this is an option. So that if they're facing excess demand beyond what is deemed a safe level, then practices should redirect patients to providers like 111. But the problem is the access plan published this week does seem to be saying that practices can't direct patients to 111 except in exceptional circumstances and that they do need to inform their commissioners if they're doing this. So it seems like a bit of a mismatch. You know, they've closed off a potential avenue for practices to go down if they've hit capacity. And ultimately, they probably will need to say that there are exceptional circumstances because if practices don't have a digital first option already on the go and most don't, then it seems likely that they might struggle. We've seen as well some GP leaders, such as Surrey and Sussex LMCs, have even suggested that practices switch off their online consultation systems outside of core hours to manage demand, and even during core hours if it becomes essential. And they've got a number of other recommendations too, so moving to a 15-minute appointment model that limits each GP to 25 to 35 patients per day. Um, capping GP consultations is potentially better for GPs. As we know, it reduces the risk of burnout um, and means that they're taking on less clinical risk throughout the day. But it could also help access. There's more chance of multiple patient concerns being discussed within one consultation and fewer follow-ups. So not trying to pack more consultations into the day hopefully means that GPs can give more time and attention to each patient that they do see, which is obviously a good thing all around. I've also been speaking to LMCs such as Cheshire and Nottinghamshire and they've really been discussing how they're going to manage these new access changes. So things like how receptionists can signpost or divert patients elsewhere when appointment slots become full and when they can't ask patients to call back later. Yeah, I mean, that line in the access plan about not sending people to 111 is, is is quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, the plan also says, which I think is very optimistic, it also says that as all of these measures in the plan are implemented, demand on 111 will apparently reduce during GP core hours because people will be able to get all the help they need from their practice. But I, I imagine there's a lot of practices out there very sceptical about that claim. I mean, as we've talked about, new phone systems and online tools are not going to build the capacity that practices need to meet demand if they're receiving three or 400 calls a day. Obviously, care navigation, we've not really talked a lot in detail about care navigation. It could help a bit, but it is quite a difficult thing to implement, I think. And I was talking to a GP earlier on today, actually, and they were talking about how it is quite hard because they are very difficult conversations that receptionists often have to have with patients. And when patients phone a practice, they want to see a GP often. It's very difficult to explain to them or persuade them that they should go somewhere else. And it's a bit like the pharmacy thing, you know, trying to tell them they want to go to a pharmacy. They're like, well, I don't need to go to a pharmacy. I want to see a GP. And then if they get to the pharmacy and then the pharmacy tells them, actually, I can't help you. You need to go back to your GP. That's just a poor experience all around. So I think there's a lot of issues around care navigation that will have to come into play and obviously practices will reach full capacity if they've got to see everyone in the day so you know what are they supposed to do then if they can't send people to 111 there's a real mismatch there and it's not at all helpful for practices or patients really there's a number of other measures in the contract around access the pcn investment and impact fund which rewards networks for performance on a range of measures that's been significantly scaled back this year 246 million pounds of that IIF funding is now being earmarked to help networks improve access in their practices. 
70% of that funding will be provided as a monthly payment to networks. The remaining 30% will be paid in March next year if PCNs meet the requirements of an access improvement plan that they have agreed with their commissioner. Now, how onerous those plans are will, I guess, depend on the Integrated Care Board. But it sounds like some networks are expecting this to be quite difficult to achieve. You've been speaking to some people about this, haven't you, Ellie? Yeah. And really what I'm hearing is that some PCNs are actually considering ignoring these access plans drawn up because they just feel that these targets are going to be impossible to achieve. Um, so they're not even going to try to meet them, which is is really quite stark. I understand that some areas across East Midlands are thinking of doing no or, or minimal work because of this. And their argument really seems to be why even use a pen as you're trying? You know, as the likelihood of achieving it is so minimal at this point. London-wide LMCs has also criticised the timing of the access plans and how it will affect PCNs in the capital. So Chief Exec Dr Michelle Drage told me that the plans, which are of course due to be implemented from Monday, come at a time when London's practices are really struggling to maintain safe patient care because demand is so high, skyrocketing. And she pointed out that the city is among the most underdoctored in the country. Dr Drage added that although ICBs might be given some say on appointment types and PCN member distribution, at the end of the day, practices are still being asked to spread their workforce even thinner than they really can do. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I was talking to a practice manager as well, and they were sort of saying to me that it's just too soon, really, to bring in all of this stuff about access from next week, effectively. They perhaps should have had longer to prepare for it. Maybe it would have been a bit easier for practice to start thinking about it if they had longer to plan about changing the way they have to deal with everybody on the day they contact the practice. This practice manager was telling me that there's a general feeling in their area that it's just too difficult. It's just almost impossible for them to do. So almost like, well, if it's that hard, why bother? It's kind of, they've almost feel like they've been set up to to fail before they've even started. And that, that kind of alludes to what the BMA said about this. So there's a lot of scepticism about whether this is actually going to improve things for patients or for practices. There's one other thing in the contract that's worth mentioning about as well. Um, one of the quality improvement modules in this year's QOF is all about practices analysing appointment capacity and demand. And it's quite a lot of work in that. I mean, I've looked through all of that and it, it seems quite complicated. You know, there's a lot of complicated data analysis that's going to be required. And I think it will be a big bit of work for practices to do if they take that on. So there's a lot going on. I mean, the, the government announcement this week is clearly designed to demonstrate that it's doing something about the challenges patients are facing getting appointments. But as we've talked about, there's a lot been added to the contract that's been imposed on the profession. So... Nick, taken all together, do we think any of this is actually going to improve patients' experiences of contacting their practice? For some, it could do. The BMA has said that these sorts of changes will take time to bed in, but that moving some work to pharmacies could help, that better technology and practices will help, and that cutting bureaucracy and workload dumped on practices by hospitals could help. But ultimately, a lot of patients, as you mentioned a minute ago, they just want to see their GP often face-to-face. And although these plans talk about respecting patients' choice around that kind of thing, a lot of this hinges on more triage. And we know from the pandemic that patients sometimes see that as just a barrier to access rather than a supportive step that helps them reach the health professional best place to support them within the primary care team, which is you know perhaps the idea. And obviously so far, we haven't seen enough to demonstrate that the funding practices need or the kinds of changes necessary to build the workforce, in particular by retaining existing experienced GPs, are coming. 
And, you know, if there aren't enough GPs, however you tinker with appointment systems and telephones, might not make enough of a difference to satisfy patients. So moving on, at the end of last month, the BMA GP committee in England held an emergency meeting to decide whether to ballot the profession on taking industrial action after the government imposed contract changes for the second year in a row. When the contract was imposed, the BMA warned that it threatened irreparable damage to general practice and totally ignored the profession's calls for additional support. They warned that it could push some practices to the brink of their existence. So they've not minced their words. And on a previous podcast, we talked about several online meetings the GP committee ran about the new contract, where a big chunk of that discussion seemed to be focused on really stealing GPs for some sort of coordinated action. So, Nick, where are we now on all of this? So on the 27th of April, uh, the BMA's GP committee voted to ballot the profession on industrial action unless the contract changes imposed on general practice for this year are renegotiated in the coming months. And they said that an indicative ballot initially would go ahead within the coming months if the government failed to agree a contract with GPC England that recognises and funds increased GP workload and allows practices to deliver safe care with freedom and trust. Basically, they're demanding talks on a deal with more core funding and less bureaucracy and saying that they could move towards industrial action if that doesn't come. And so a week on from that vote, the BMA's GP committee met with the primary care minister, Neil O'Brien. And at that meeting, senior GPs told the minister that they were concerned about the suitability, the sustainability of the contract imposed for this year, for 2023-24, and warned him that they were ready to take industrial action. But what's become clear from the comments I've had from the GP committee this week is that the talks are not about changing the current contract, but about the future contract. So the contract from April 2024 onwards that will replace the existing five-year contract agreement that GPs are working under. The government has agreed to further meetings over the coming weeks with the BMA to talk about a new contract framework. And how those talks go will determine what happens next. And if they collapse, we should expect the BMA to ballot the profession on some of the measures we've talked about before, such as 24-hour shutdown of general practice, list closures or undated contract resignations. You know, although the talks are about reshaping the contract for next year, from April 2024, if the talks break down, then action would take place within the current year is the expectation that we've had from the BMA, I would say. Okay, so that's where we are now. But we also know from talking to GPs that some of them would like to see a move straight to industrial action. They'd rather not do this wait and see approach. Ellie, you've been speaking to doctors about this. What did they tell you? Opinion is definitely really split on this issue, as you might expect. So some GPs I've spoken to really agree with a decision made by the GPC. So that going for a ballot sometime in the coming months if the government doesn't agree to a change in the imposed contract, is the right thing to do. But others are of the view that this delay just sends too weak of a message to the government, meaning that there's not much chance of it actually completing a U-turn over the contract without any industrial action. One fact that the ballot should be now, because the government has provided clear evidence, in quotes, that there's next to no chance of any meaningful change to a contract. Another stress that the GPC has had plenty of chances to get this right and warned that the recently imposed contract may drive even more practices out of business. 
Although others were critical and felt that the government and NHS England have been terrible for general practice in recent years, they did agree that it's right to give them a chance to avoid a strike by negotiating in good faith. They warned that if the government still refuses to talk on this, the ballot will need to be acted on though. One GP I spoke to said he'd give the BMA about a month to negotiate a better agreement, but if they hadn't done that in that time frame, then they should move to a ballot. Yeah, well, we, we definitely need to see how these negotiations go on in the coming months. And, and obviously, we'll be writing about what we know about that on GP Online. The UK LMC's conference takes place in London on Thursday and Friday next week, the 18th and 19th of May. We'll be there reporting on all the debates from the event and you can find full coverage on gponline.com from Thursday morning. We've got a preview story about some of the motions that are up for debate at this year's event, which we'll link to in the description from this episode. GP leaders will be debating about whether general practice should pursue the same approach as junior doctors and push for full pay restoration. A range of motions will also look at the workforce with a debate calling for a major overhaul of the BMA model contract for salaried GPs that would cap patient contacts to safe levels and build in salary rates that reflect pay restorations. And LMCs will also be debating those controversial plans that we talked about earlier for SAS doctors to work alongside GPs in general practice. So look out for updates on all of that on our website next week. Finally, we've just got time for our good news slot, which this week is about patient campaigns to save practices. Ellie, you've been writing about this for the website. What's that all about? So over recent months, I think we've seen a pretty significant rise in patient groups all across the UK campaigning to keep their local GP practices open as the workforce crisis and other pressures really take their toll. So often these are in rural areas, not always, um, but it does seem to be a situation where villages are really coming together and protesting for the future of their GP provision. So this might be against closures or mergers or them moving elsewhere and leaving the elderly vulnerable to having to travel. And I just got quite a few interesting comments from those at the forefront. So GPs affected or campaign groups. Um, And it'll be interesting to see more about why patients are becoming so keen to take matters into their own hands. Yeah, I mean, potentially that could be seen as a, a bit of a bad news story about the workforce crisis forcing practices to close. But what I suppose what is so positive about it is the strength of feeling that some of these communities have, that the importance of having a GP practice in their local community. And that is just really a positive story, I think, about the important role that GPs play and how valued they are by the people that they serve. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening and thanks to Ellie and Nick. I'm back next week when I'm talking to Dr Elaine Lockhart, who is chair of the Royal College of Psychiatrists Children and Young People's Faculty, about the impact the pandemic has had on young people's mental health. In the meantime, don't forget you can keep up to date with all the news affecting general practice and access a host of other resources and information on our website at gponline.com.